With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agricultural news with me today. The demand for cut flowers is no longer just a seasonal passage. Fresh cut flowers have seldom been so coveted. Floral sales are soaring as Valentine's Day approaches, and it's more than just the season that is driving the trend. The cut flower sector has seen a renaissance due to the pandemic, as many local customers have come to see home bouquets as a regular part of self-care. Valentine's Day typically trails only Mother's Day in volume of flowers sold, and it's often the highest revenue event of the year. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into our show headlines. Foreign farmland ownership becomes a military security issue. First, it was a competition issue, but recently foreign ownership of U.S. farmland, especially by China, has become a U.S. national security issue. A Chinese spy balloon was spotted over in Montana, and now a U.S. Air Force warning proposed Chinese land buys in North Dakota are all too close to military drone testing. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley has a bill on his mind to include USDA on the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States. He fears that more farmland could fall into China's hands in the future. Nearly half of U.S. farmland is owned by Americans over 65 years of age. So that means in the next 20 years, it could be up to 370 million acres of farmland could be changing hands. A second Grassley bill would bar the farm credit system from lending to foreign investors for U.S. farmland, a bill enacted last year's aimed at transparency. Under the bill, USDA is required to build an interactive database to show foreign ownership disclosures, and the USDA will report to Congress on the impact of these investments. Especially in driving up farmland prices. Most foreign-owned farmland here is held by allies, Canada, the Netherlands, Italy, and Germany. USDA says China, Russia, and Iran together only accounted for 200,000 acres in 2019. But an amount that now seems understated, considering the latest national security concerns. NAFB contributed to that report, and now here's Brian German with more Agriculture News. A different approach for using polyethylene materials to protect grapes from high temperatures may be a viable option for growers. Ph.D. candidate at UC Davis, Lauren Murigliano, has been looking at overhead shading options to protect grapes more effectively than the polyethylene netting that's been applied to the sides of vineyard canopies. These polyethylene nets have a overall shading percentage, meaning that, let's say it's a black net, that black net can shade 60% of all light that reaches the grape canopy. However, what we found previously is that a lot of those nettings, if the shade factor is too high, you're shading out too much of the photosynthetic light that the plant needs to ripen the fruit. So a lot of times underneath those netting, there's a reduction in sugars, there's a reduction in flavor, reduction in color, but not necessarily due to degradation, it's due to the fact that the plant's not producing as much of those compounds. So the idea of the plastics was we don't want to shade the photosynthetic light. We want to specifically pick the harmful wavelengths of light to block from reaching the canopy. UC Agriculture and Natural Resources is hosting an irrigation and nutrient management meeting in a few weeks in Salinas. The event will take place on Tuesday, February 21st at the Monterey County Cooperative Extension Office beginning at 8 in the morning. 
Irrigation advisor Michael Kahn will begin the meeting with a presentation going over pressure regulation, system design, and scheduling a drip irrigation system. He'll also be talking about strategies for factoring in nitrate in irrigation water and nutrient management plans later in the day. Other topics of discussion will include practices for improving soil health and its broader impacts, along with basics of pumps, pump tests, and variable frequency drives. There will also be several presentations covering aspects of Ag Order 4.0, followed by a grower panel on experiences with irrigation and nutrient management improvements. More information on the meetings available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the 2023 Agriculture Appropriations Bill included $1.7 billion for agricultural research for the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Chair of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Agriculture, Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Wisconsin Democrat, says the research is broken down into a variety of areas. In other news, I was at the Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show last week. I learned about cattle parasite control. Here's that conversation with Dr. Thatcher Winslow, Beef Cattle Technical Consultant with Elanco. We are here at the NCBA Convention and you are telling people about parasite control. So tell me a little bit about what you are talking to people about today at the booth. Sabrina, thanks. Um, parasite control is as important now as it ever has been because as we look at over the decades, we're starting to see resistance to our dewormers, our anthelmintics, and and so how to treat parasites? They've, they've always been of economic significance, but how to treat them is 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 a very important thing. So, what are you suggesting now for treatment? Well, the first thing we look at is what parasites to be concerned about, because if you if you look at the label of most dewormers, there would be 20, 30, you know, species and stages of parasites listed. But there's really a top five for me, and and when we when I consider what makes a parasite uh, significant it's it's a combination of how common is it and how pathogenic or how much damage it can do and so when we when we look at the most common parasite um, in beef cattle it's, it's ostratasia and actually it's also the it's also the most damaging it, it, it has the most economic impact and so it owns that space all by itself when we look at parasites like uh, homonchus and and lungworms they're pretty pathogenic, they do a lot of damage, but we see a lot less of them. And when we look at Cuparia and esophagostomum, um, they're a lot more common, but they're compared to the other parasites, they're nowhere near as pathogenic. So we focus a lot of what we do around Ostertasia. That being said, we can do even more instead of assuming by knowing what parasites are there. And, and the way that we know that is, is to, to do, you know, traditionally fecal egg counts are, are what we do to evaluate parasites, but the problem with fecal egg counts is that we don't know what species they are. So we don't know whether we've got a problem parasite or not. And what complicates it even more is that 
an adult uh, esophagostomum, for example, may lay 2,000 eggs, where an adult ostertasia only lays 200. And so that egg count really confuses us. Uh, the, the approach we have taken now is that we will do those egg counts, and then we're, we're working with uh, Texas A&M and their lab, and they will do what's called copriculture, and that means they'll grow the eggs up, it takes about two weeks, and we know what species they are, so then we know how many of what species that herd is dealing with, and we can then decide um, what product to use um, to treat them uh, and, and when to treat them. So that kind of information must be just extremely vital then to, to have to know what you're fighting. Yes, you know, at Alanco, um, we don't feel that the kitchen sink is what you want to throw at your herd. Um, everything we do has an intended consequence and an unintended consequence. And so um, we want to use the right products in the right animals at the right time. And species-specific quantitative analysis is our tool to do that in parasitology, where we can, where we can use the right product at the right time. Um, because if we just hit all the animals, we're going to make more resistance. And that's going to make the problem worse. So, uh, that's, that's a, a pretty novel approach to what we're doing, and, and it's working tremendously well with large producers all across the country. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson, Fragnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, USDA's annual cattle inventory report as of January 1 showed that dairy cow numbers are higher than a year ago. But according to a story from Gary Crawford, just barely higher. The latest USDA cattle inventory report shows substantial declines from a year ago on the beef side of things. But if you check milk cow numbers as of January 1st... They were up fractionally at about 9.4 million cows, three-tenths of a percent above where they were in 2022. So just a very small increase in the overall dairy inventory. And USDA livestock analyst Shale Shagam says you get a better idea of what's happening in dairy by looking at another key number. You can sort of see in your your heifer retention numbers that producers are not overly optimistic because we are looking at a milk cow replacement number of about 4.3 million head. It was 4.4 million a year ago, so that's a reduction of about 2%. USDA's most recent forecast for 2023 milk production pegs output up from a year ago, but by less than a percent. Prices forecast down about 15%. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks, Gary. In other news, USDA's Economic Research Service is reporting that as average paddock sizes increase, farmers and ranchers are tending to rotate their cattle less frequently. Rotational grazing systems, of course, rotate animals among a series of paddocks or fence-pastured areas, allowing forage to recover before returning the cattle to graze in that spot again. A key decision for ranchers that affects forage growth is the number of rotations for a given number of paddocks. A large portion, or 84% of operations with small paddocks of 19 acres or less rotated their cattle so that each paddock had four or more rotations per year. Intensive rotational grazing systems use an average grazing period of 14 or fewer days per paddock. In contrast, researchers found that about 52% of operations using large paddocks of 40 acres or more rotated cattle four or more times per year. The pattern of smaller paddocks and more rotations was even more evident for basic rotational grazing operations, which use an average grazing period longer than 14 days. And a group of senators is urging the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service to take swift action to address the ongoing avian influenza outbreak. 
The lawmakers asked Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack to quickly use funds provided by Congress in the fiscal year 2023 Agriculture Appropriations Bill. Led by Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, the lawmakers said it is imperative the agency quickly deploy additional resources and work with the states in improving biosecurity measures within the avian supply chain. That includes the disinfection of sites and the testing of quarantining of affected flocks. As of January 31st this year, APHIS confirmed avian flu had been found in 745 blocks and 47 states and it affected over 58 million birds. In this fiscal year, Omnibus Appropriations Act, Congress did provide an increase in annual funding to address the avian influenza outbreak. I'm Randall This is Weisman the Agnet, Agnet News Agnet Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. USDA is developing new ways to track COVID in wild and domestic animals. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Scientists with USDA's Agricultural Research Service are developing new tests to identify and track the COVID virus in wild and domestic animals. Funded by the American Rescue Plan, USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service is implementing $300 million to conduct monitoring and surveillance of susceptible animals for the COVID virus. Through the initiative, ARS, in partnership with APHIS, is conducting five research projects to improve its understanding of the virus and to help APHIS accomplish its goal of building an early war warning system to potentially prevent or limit the next zoonotic disease outbreak or global pandemic. Two of the projects call for developing easy-to-use field tests to quickly identify COVID infection in wildlife and domestic animals. Currently, all official testing of animals for COVID requires sending samples to certified laboratories and can take a week or more to provide answers. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Asset valuation issues are common for farmers and ranchers. Valuation is the starting point for estate and gift tax planning, as well as for certain aspects of income tax planning. As part of determining overall value for a farming enterprise, machinery, buildings, crops, and livestock are a big part. I'll get back to the report in a moment, but I want you to know that Schrader Real Estate and Auction Company has sold farm to ranch land and farm equipment in 40 states. Learn how the Schrader family can help your family. Visit SchraderAuction.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R Auction.com. Valuing ag assets is important for tax and other reasons. Accurately valuing livestock is usually not difficult. That's because daily market prices exist. The key is to make sure to understand differences in livestock with respect to gender and health, and whether the livestock are to be used for breeding, dairy, or meat production purposes. So if you know your categories and weight ranges in those categories, you will get an accurate picture of value. For stored crops, daily market prices are readily accessible, but quality and cost to deliver to market can influence the bottom line. 
Valuing fruit and vegetables can be trickier. There may not be any reliable daily market price or any reasonable assurance that the fruit or vegetables can be sold at the highest valued use. For contracted crops, the contract can be used as a measure of value. For growing crops, IRS regulations provide guidance. Predicting harvest yields is speculative, but it might be possible to use the amount of the potential harvest that is insured as a basis for determining yield when valuing the growing crop. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Well, of interest to grain producers in the monthly USDA supply-demand update, besides, of course, U.S. and world production estimates, average cash prices. The average corn price was left unchanged, $6.70. Cash soybean prices, though, increased a dime to $14.30. Soybean meal prices jumped $25 per ton to $450. That would be of particular interest to livestock producers and future feed costs. Soy oil cash prices were left unchanged, by the way. Average wheat prices lost a dime from the January report from $9.10 to right at $9 a bushel now. Interesting that wheat led the advance on the board going into the report and led advances into the close. Pro-germinator can be used at planting time with little risk of seedling injury, making it a powerful part of planter fertilizer program. Learn more at agroliquid.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. We really mislead these supply-demand updates on calling them crop reports because there's always livestock information. USDA raised first-quarter beef production by 140 million pounds, and average cash hog prices jumped $3.23 now to $75.45. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. We find that the percentage of socially disadvantaged and the percentage of getting farming operations are negatively correlated with things like average lease size and positively correlated with the percentage of rented farmland. Among the findings from a recent USDA Economic Research Service study on issues and challenges associated with beginning and socially disadvantaged producers acquiring or accessing farmland. Economic researcher Scott Callahan is among the authors of this study. In addition to that, we find that for socially disadvantaged operations specifically, they're negatively correlated with the percentage of cropland acreage and positively correlated with successful applications to farm service agency loan programs and conservation reserve program acreage at the county level. The study is part of a 2018 Farm Bill request by Congress for the Agriculture Department to look at potential barriers and solutions regarding farmland access for beginning and socially disadvantaged farmers. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Stephanie Zelenko, AgriLiquid National Agronomist, explains what growers can expect from Crop Nutrition Week. Growers that participate in Crop Nutrition Week can expect to see or hear about a virtual experience where we can educate growers about the different aspects of crop nutrition. And so we know that crop nutrition is just a small piece of a grower's overall operation, and they don't necessarily think about fertilizer every day. So it's our hopes with this event to provide some information on a number of different topics 
topics that will help them improve their operation. Zelenko says each day will cover a different topic. Starting from the basics of a soil test, trying to figure out what those limiting factors are and a number of different tips that they can do to address those limiting factors to improve their crop operation. And then from there, we'll take it a step further and tie in the economic side. So looking at data to help make good decisions and then build that into a economic based crop nutrition program, and then anything else that they can come up with in season. So there's a lot of different options when you're planning a fertility program to leave room for some changes that may come up during that growing season. Crop Nutrition Week is a virtual event that allows growers flexibility on when to join the conversation. Crop Nutrition Week is completely virtual, so you can register for this event. It is free. Just go to the website, which is cropnutritionweek.com, and all the content will be delivered directly to the inboxes throughout the week. And so they have that opportunity to look at them right away, or if their schedule is a little bit busy for a certain day, they can catch up later on in the week. And there is no deadline to sign up for the free event. There is no deadline to sign up. In fact, if we're midweek into Crop Nutrition Week, there's still opportunity and we encourage guys to go out and go to that website and sign up. All the information is going to be stored on a website, so it's going to be accessible in the future, so it's not too late to join in. Again, Crop Nutrition Week is February 6th through 10th. Learn more and register online at cropnutritionweek.com. Michael Clements reporting. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. The year 1946. Our president then is Harry Truman. This is a vital part of the work of helping to make a healthier and happier life for all our children in the years ahead. President Truman signing the law that created the National School Lunch Program 77 years ago, a program under which the U.S. Department of Agriculture would provide money and ag commodities to help schools offer free or reduced-price lunches to low-income students. And through the years, that basic design has prevailed. The program has given birth also to the school breakfast program as well. And now let's fast forward 77 years to last week. The program is still with us, and today... 15.3 million children every single day in those schools uh, enjoy a school breakfast. 29.6 million enjoy a school lunch. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack announcing some proposed rules that would enhance the nutritional content of those meals and perhaps provide more opportunity for local farmers in the process. We'll take a look at those proposed new and possibly controversial nutrition standards on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. 
children are as necessary to the welfare of this country as is Wall Street and the railroad or any other part of the country. That's what President Harry Truman said when he signed the 1946 law creating the National School Lunch Program. And Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says in the wording of that law. Congress suggested it was a measure of national security to safeguard the health and well-being of our nation's children and to encourage the consumption of domestically produced nutritious agricultural commodities. Uh, part of this national security concern was that when World War II broke out, the military was finding a big percentage of young men being called in for the military draft were too weak, too small, too unhealthy to serve because of not getting enough calories, enough protein, enough food when they were children to maintain their health and perform well in school or in military training. Today, the concern in some situations is still that some students are not getting enough food. But in the last few years, the concern has shifted a bit to worries that kids are getting too many calories, too much sugar, too much fat, and that's causing some major health problems, including an epidemic of obesity. Also, doctors are reporting diabetes showing up in more and more children and adolescents. And the military is reporting a big percentage of people coming in to volunteer are being rejected because of obesity and other nutrition-related conditions. And so Tom Vilsack says, This is a national security imperative. It's a health care imperative for our children. It's an educational achievement issue. And so after at least a couple of years of gathering information from scientists, school nutrition workers and others, Vilsack has just announced a proposed set of new nutrition standards for the meals that would be served by schools participating in the national school lunch and breakfast programs. The proposed rules would, for example, put a limit on the amount of sodium and added sugars in school meals. In sodium, we're looking at gradual reductions. Now we're phasing that in, in, in small increments. And why are we doing that? Because the Food and Drug Administration's guidelines are suggesting that that's the most appropriate way to embrace sodium reductions and at the same time continue to have acceptance. Sugar, for the first time, uh, we're looking at an added sugar standard, uh, phasing that in as well. And on whole grains, uh, we continue to prioritize uh, whole grains with some flexibility uh, in, in that standard as well. There is also increased flexibility on how much of what kinds of milk will be served. And the timeline for these standards to take effect? So we begin in the school year 2024 and 2025 with full implementation of all the standards across the board by the year school year 2029-2030. Giving schools and their students about five years to adjust to the new standards. Also, the new initiative has programs to technically and financially help small and rural schools that are having trouble meeting the standards. And obviously it's an opportunity as well uh, to support our farmers. And Vilsack on the phone with reporters said, Also in this rule is a, an acknowledgement of the important role of developing a greater connection between local and regional providers and the schools that they can potentially serve. We have a local and uh, regional food purchasing agreement system in place, 77 agreements across uh, the country where we are uh, trying to work ways in which we can encourage more local and regional supplies. We think that's an important consideration. Which will help local producers and also limit the problems in the food chain if something like COVID were to happen again. The Agriculture Department will be taking public comments on the proposed standards for the next couple of months. And after studying those comments, we'll publish final rules. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 
This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. Support us at 4H.org. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. While at the Almond Conference back in December, we had the opportunity to speak with Gabrielle Ludwig, Director for Sustainability and Environmental Affairs for the Almond Board and a member of the Sustainable Pest Management Workgroup, which recently released the Sustainable Pest Management Roadmap for California. After moderating a panel discussion at the conference, Gabrielle highlighted some of the key points of discussion during this session. So the title of the panel was Wither Pest Management, sort of old-fashioned language to say what direction is pest management headed. Um, And so the panel really talked about, we first had um, Julie Henderson, the head of Department of Pesticide Regulation, sort of talking about what's going on from her perspective and all the regulatory issues that she's working on. And really key element of that is DPR with CDFA and this work group has been working on something called Sustainable Pest Management, which is sort of another level of IPM. And with that, and fundamentally the goal of that is to move away from chemical pesticides. I mean, that's no two ways about it. What's not explicitly said, but that's the gist of it. And then really what the rest of the panels were, we're providing different approaches where the Almond Board either has funding um, or has been funding research on how are we trying to look at new technologies, look at new ways to help us be better in our pest management and to some extent potentially move away from some of the traditional chemical pesticides. Not sure that will happen, but that's what's the gist of what we were doing. So the panel really was like, here's the big picture, at least from a California perspective, and then three examples of new approaches to dealing with some of our key pests. And one of those um, that I, I've talked to several people from Almond Board about uh, mating disruption. Almond Board has been heavily involved in kind of looking at that. What what was the project in, in this panel that was kind of specifically discussed that seems very steeped in cooperation and, and maybe working with neighbors and other collaborators there? What is, what is that project kind of an overview of, of how is that working out? Let me just backtrack. I mean, the Almond Board actually started funding research on seeking the pheromones from naval orange room 48, 49, 50 years ago, okay? So just want to be clear how long this, what, the, what this project is building on is a long history of funding research on trying to understand what are the components of the pheromones that attract it. And then, you know, about 15 years ago, he came out with commercial products that did puffers with mating disruption. And what the research has really been showing that is that mating disruption is quite effective, but this is true for most puffer-based mating disruption, is it really works better when you get it to a larger scale, landscape scale. So the smaller the acreage, the more likely wind or something's going to blow it away, and it's not going to be effective. So what this project is trying to do, and this is a California Department of Pesticide Regulation-funded project, 
is saying, can we use, again, new technology? So can we have a mapping tool that growers could sign into and say, hey, I'm already doing mating disruption, but I'm not sure if my neighbors around me are or not. Or I have a bunch of small blocks where it's just is not cost effective to do it. And if I could find neighbors around me that would be interested in also doing it, we could collectively or, you know, in that combination, actually get to an effective use of naval orange room mating disruption. So the whole idea here is um, having built this tool, um, it's been piloted for the first year in one region in Stanislaus County. The tool is now available to any grower to sign up and, and, and there's really two elements to that tool. One is if you are using mating disruption but would like to see it in a larger area around you, put in that you are or if you're not and are interested in doing it, then put in that you're interested in, and then, then the tool will know notify you of, okay, here are opportunities, is there anybody else around you who's interested? So you could maybe talk to your neighbors and say, okay, can we work on this together? It's not just for almonds, it's for almonds, walnuts, and pistachios, since we all know that Naval Orange Room likes all three of those crops. (laughs) And uh, another project that was discussed here um, involving more than one nut crop was um, looking at something to address uh, leaf-footed bugs. And it seems like um, more and more that collaborative approach with other nut growers um, seems to be the the way of things to address a, a multitude of pests. Yeah, I mean, for the leaf-footed bug, it lives in a whole bunch of different areas. It also lives in, and so that's actually one a different area of research is needing to really get a better understanding is where is this leaf-footed bug and where is it living. But one of the first tools is actually to have better ability to monitor for it. And so what the Almond Board's been funding, and I was just talking to Bob Curtis for over seven years, is understanding what are the chemical elements that make up the pheromone that makes uh, females attractive to, or males attractive to the females of leaf-footed bug, so that that's how they find each other. So for right now, all we're trying to do is get a better lure. The first element is right now, we have no good tools to detect leaf-footed bug before they're in the orchard. You see the damage is probably most, most commonly, you're like, oh, they're there. So can we get to a system where you can monitor for it and be more timely in pesticide sprays because you know it? And then the other element that will be helpful with is that hopefully you'll start being able to see more on a landscape level where this insect is is if we have a wider network of these um, traps that will help with that. But that's still down in the future. So where we are right now is chemists have extracted and figured out the key elements that are attractive and that do work. And now really needs to be about refining it, seeing if it can be made cheaper and, and then moving it into the commercial space. And uh, just lastly here, uh, kind of the point of the whole panel is these things are constantly evolving. There's constant adaptation, and that's part of what Almond Board has uh, strategically been about is looking ahead and and trying to um, get ahead of what might be on the horizon there. Correct. I mean, really, all three panelists on the research side were talking about, you know, bringing in new technologies or new kinds of pesticides, in the case of the fungicides, bringing in modeling and moving it into the more technology world. So really trying to figure out how can we bring new technology to bear, whether it's on the chemical side or on the, I'll call it the mapping or communications or uh, sensors in the field that then can use your data to better, more precisely model where something might be happening or not. I mean, that was really what we were talking about today. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at Statewide Agriculture News at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's 
Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. The Ag Subcommittee Selection for the 118th Congress. The House Committee on Agriculture has selected its members for the subcommittee chairs and jurisdictions for the 118th Congress. Representative Glenn G.T. Thompson is the chairman of the House Act Committee and David Scott of Georgia is the ranking member this session. The subcommittee leads include Ohio's Chantel Brown as the ranking member of the Subcommittee on General Farm Commodities, Risk Management, and Credit with Representative Austin Scott of Georgia as the chair. California's Doug LaMalfa will chair the Subcommittee on Forestry with Oregon's Andrea Salinas serving as the top Democrat. Virginia's Abigail Spanberger is the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Conservation, Research, and Biotechnology, with Representative Jim Baird of Indiana as chair. Meanwhile, Connecticut's Johanna Hayes will be the top Democrat on the Subcommittee on Nutrition, Foreign Agriculture, and Horticulture, with Representative Braid Feinstad as the chair. California's Jim Costa will assume the same role on the Subcommittee on Livestock, Dairy, and Poultry, and Tracy Mann of Kansas will accompany. Finally, Dusty Johnson of South Dakota will chair the Subcommittee on Commodity Markets, Digital Assets, and Rural Development, alongside ranking member Yadiro Carvero of Colorado. For a list of the jurisdictions and responsibilities, and also to view a calendar of their upcoming hearings and meetings, visit agriculture.house.gov. And in more agriculture news, Congress heard from the American Farm Bureau Federation earlier this week regarding the updated Waters of the U.S. rule, also known as WOTUS. Michael Clements shares what farmers and ranchers are saying. Missouri Farm Bureau President Garrett Hawkins told Congress Wednesday the updated Waters of the U.S. rule creates uncertainty and unnecessary costs for farmers and ranchers. What we as Farm Bureau had the chance to share with the House Transportation Infrastructure Subcommittee is that the only thing certain under the new Biden rule is uncertainty. Truly, as a farmer, there is no way to take the rule text as it's been presented and published and determine whether you have features on your land that are jurisdictional or not. And that uncertainty is what we have dealt with for decades and what we need to correct in the long term. Hawkins says the uncertainty created by the rule, which was released late last year, impacts the day-to-day operations for farmers and ranchers. It's about the potential for being exposed to a permitting process and the cost that's associated with hiring experts and attorneys to walk you through the process. It's the uncertainty of potential compliance costs and the potential levying of civil and or criminal penalties. And ultimately, it's the red tape that impacts you to be able to do what you do on the farm. 
Hawkins urges farmers and ranchers to stand up against WOTUS. I'd encourage folks to work with their state farm bureaus. This is a team effort, and as I think historically, there has been a broad coalition led by agriculture, but covering the gamut of all industry who are standing up and saying, we all support clean water, but we also need clear rules. And in this case, the Biden rule misses the mark yet again. Learn more at fb.org slash WOTUS. Michael Clements, Washington. Bayer and Kimitech partner on commercializing biologicals. Bayer and Kimitech announce a new strategic partnership focused on accelerating the development and commercialization of biological crop protection solutions and biostimulants. As part of a global agreement, both companies will become key partners to advance and establish biological solutions derived from natural sources, including crop protection products that addressed pests, diseases, and weeds, as well as biostimulants to promote plant growth. Kimitech operates Europe's largest biotechnological innovation hub with 15 years of experience in researching and discovering natural molecules and compounds for agriculture. By leveraging Bayer's product development expertise with Kimitech's proven discovery capabilities, biological product development will be accelerated to build integrative crop management solutions that can scale and develop through Bayer's global infrastructure backbone. This includes field testing, product support, and commercialization. Dr. Robert Reeder, head of R&D for Bayer's Crop Science Division, says, quote, Bayer is committed to providing growers with the benefits of biological solutions as part of an integrated crop management system. NAFB contributed to that report. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.